invite the rest of you to open your Bibles to Matthew 28 once again, if you would. I officiated and preached the gospel yesterday at a funeral service. Seems a little odd to have a funeral on Easter weekend, but it was a great reminder to me, and I guess I'll share it as a reminder to you. You need a resurrected Savior. And I need a resurrected Savior. Jesus is the one who said, I am the resurrection. He who believes in me, though he die, yet surely shall he live. And we are gathered together in the name of the resurrected Savior, and it couldn't be more relevant for us. So I love it that we're looking at this historic account of the resurrection And we're looking at it as needy men and women. We need a resurrected Savior. We should love history like never before. We should love the history of redemption, what Christ has done for us. So this morning we'll look at this historic account of the resurrection in Matthew 28. We used it for scripture reading already. And we'll see seven responses to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Seven historic responses, but they are all in one way or another relevant to us as people who need a resurrected Savior. The first historic response to the resurrection of Jesus is the response of fear. Look with me, if you would, beginning in verse 1, and we'll see this response of fear. Verse 1 says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. I don't mean to be rude, but I'll interrupt just for a second and Fill in the blanks a little bit. Luke 24, 1 tells us they're bringing spices, so they're going to show honor and respect for the dead. Mark 16, 3 tells us that they were concerned on their way there as to how they would remove what Matthew 27 tells us was a huge stone. But the stone ends up not being the problem, as we'll see. Look at verse 2. And behold, there was a a great earthquake, which is reason enough to be afraid, right? I've been in a big, great earthquake, and I was afraid. But that's not what the source of fear is. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Then verse 3, we're going to see it's not to let Jesus out. It's to let them in. Look at verse 3. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. We'll just stop there for a moment and take it in with great joy. The guards are sissies. (laughs) The guards are afraid. Armed guards probably temple guards, the guards you would want on your side if you were going to have conflict or a battle, and they are scared out of their sissified minds because the angel is there. And they are scared and we are happy because they've been against Jesus. They've been on the wrong side. And so we like this angel. We like what he did to them. And as good Baptists, we would say, Amen. We're glad they are afraid. Now with that said, what's really most impressive to me is not this impressive angel who makes them afraid. Actually, if I were to think about 
the whole Bible for a moment and ask you to do the same, what's actually most impressive here with their fear of the great angel is the greatness of Christ. I realize it's not in this passage. We'll need to look elsewhere. But by the fact that these men are afraid of this great and mighty angel causes me to think about the greatness of Christ. And I'm going to say to you, when you see these great men afraid because of the great angel, it should cause you to go one level higher on the greatness factor, and that is Christ Himself. Because this very angel and many, many, many more angels like Him are not impressed with themselves and they're not impressed with each other. They're impressed with none other than Jesus Christ. Listen if you would. You could write it down. Just listen though for now. Revelation 5, 11, and 12. I love this. Then I looked and heard around the throne. This is the throne of Christ. And the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Verse 12 says, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's actually what we should think ultimately. Oh, these impressive men were so overwhelmed by the impressive angel that they were terrified. Well, let's make sure we understand these impressive angels, even when they're all together, myriads and myriads of them are most impressed with the risen Jesus Christ. He is the one to be feared. You might say, then why weren't people so impressed with Jesus when He was here? Well, that's because of Philippians chapter 2. Jesus humbled Himself. He purposely came here as a weak one. He purposely gave Himself up so that He would be crucified, so that He would atone for our sins, so that He could then rise again from the dead on our behalf. But it was all Him doing it to Himself. That's why. May their fear remind you of the greatness of Christ. Well, as we move on, we see a second historic response, and that response is a response of joy. Before we actually get to it, it's kind of interesting. The angel doesn't show up ultimately for the guards, the somebodies in the culture. He shows up for the women, the nobodies in the culture. And we see joy. Look at verse 5. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know what you seek, Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for He has risen as He said. And if you're not catching what's happening here by way of the literature, look at verse 5 again. I underlined the last part, Jesus who was crucified, and then I circled crucified because you're meant to see the connection to verse 6. He has risen. Crucified. Risen? I mean, it just is the most radical in contrast that there could possibly be. Crucified? The one who's crucified is, is, is risen? Just as He said. Just as He said in Matthew 16.21. Just as He said in Matthew 17.23. Just as He said in Matthew 20.18 and 19. He's been talking about this all along. He's also been talking about how He would give Himself up to be crucified. And he would rise again from the dead as the victor, as the success. Don't you love him? 
Then verse 7 says, Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he... I have to just insert for your memory's sake, he who was crucified has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed, verse 8 says, quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And you would too, right? You've got good news. You've got the best news of all best news. And what are you going to do? You've just been told by the risen one to go and tell and you're going to go and do it as well. You've been told by the, his angelic messenger. So you're, you, you've got to go tell other people. Now it says in verse 8 that they had fear with great joy. So they're running to tell the disciples. I mean, just to appreciate the fear a bit. I made myself a list in light of crucifixion, in light of what they saw happen there. And now they hear by means of divine messenger that causes the big strong guys to pass out. Think with me, if you would, what the contrast really is. What's causing these ladies to have great joy? Think about what they witnessed, because they were eyewitnesses of the crucifixion. They saw Jesus physically devastated. Isaiah says actually he was marred more than any man. So the portrait you see at the local bookstore with a little blood is very, very inappropriate. Physically devastated, they saw him there. Darkness in the middle of the day, they saw that. They felt the massive earthquake at His death. They heard His agonizing cry. They heard Him cry out to His Father, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? They saw Him or heard Him breathe His last breath and give up His own life. You see, they experienced it all. They were there. They were eyewitnesses of the whole thing. And now, by divine messenger, they hear, He's risen from the dead! Go! Tell His disciples! It's no wonder that their joy-filled heart is, is pounding outside of their chest. They couldn't be more thrilled. They saw it with their own eyes. If this is true, this is absolutely amazing and all of our hopes are become, have become realities. Put yourself in those ladies' shoes. You saw what happened to Him. If this is true... This means He really is the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. If this is true, that also means that He is the resurrection for all who believe. This is where their great joy is coming from. And so they're running with good news. On their way to the disciples, something happens. Third historic response to the resurrection is worship. Worship. Look at verse 9 there where it says, And behold, Jesus, if I might, just for flow's sake, Jesus, who they saw crucified, who they heard cry, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. I wonder what that would have sounded like. I never know how to read it. You know, was it with kind of a scary voice? An intimidating voice? A very kind, soft voice? I don't know. But however he said it, it was enough for them to 
do the following. Keep reading in verse 9. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. The point isn't how he said it. The point is, the crucified one is risen and he's there meeting them and they grab his feet and they worship him. And you know what? You would too. If you saw him with your own eyes, heard him with your own ears, and now he is standing there talking to you and you know like you've never known before that everything he said is true. That is good. That is very good. The only explanation is he's more than a mere man. He really is the one who said before Abraham was, I am. Well, that's what God said. That's right. He's more than a mere man. He's the God man. And so they worship him. They worship him. It's the right response. Now, we've been studying Romans together as a church, and Romans is about the gospel. It's really, if you will, explaining the implications of the gospel narrative, like Matthew. It's explaining what's below the surface. Not that this is surfacey, it's not surfacey, but on the surface is Jesus' perfect life, perfect death, perfect resurrection for all those who would believe. That's in the gospel narrative. That's what we're reading about here. But there are ramifications below the surface that are huge. And when you think about what some of those ramifications are, all the more reason. When you see the risen Christ, you worship Him. Here's my list, just to jog my own memory, learning from Romans. This resurrected Christ is the justifier. He's the sanctifier. He's the glorifier. He's the redeemer. He's the propitiator. He's the sustainer. He's the intercessor. He's the Savior. So if we really wanted to make this simple, resurrection equals sign worship. We worship Christ because He really is who He said He was. And He really did what He said He was going to do. And so we worship Him. And that's what they did. And they're giving us a great example. I would like to point out something that's obvious too. In verse 10 where it goes, uh, we read on in verse 10 where it says, Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. What's obvious if you just stop and think about it is what Jesus doesn't say. He has a perfect opportunity because He is correcting them. Don't be afraid. But notice He doesn't say, Don't worship Me. He doesn't say it. Like the angel in the book of Revelation where John himself bows down to pay homage to the angel and the angel says, Stop! Jesus doesn't. And it's right that He doesn't. Because He's not a mere man. But he does say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, they've been afraid of Jesus before. What's interesting is the pattern is when Jesus does things that are, that are mind-blowingly supernatural, they bite their nails. They get afraid. When Jesus, in the, in the storm on the Sea of Galilee, which, by the way, you know, isn't even a, isn't even a sea, it's a lake. It's called a sea even to this day because it's so tumultuous sometimes. He calms it like that with the Word. And that's where, I think it's in the King James, it says they were very much afraid. 
Well, they were afraid of the storm. They're very much afraid of the fact that Jesus has the power over the storm. Supernatural equals fear, but Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to condemn you. We could move forward in our minds to Acts 17 and know that the Apostle Paul will go on to say, resurrection is proof that Jesus will judge you if you don't repent. That'd be a message for some of you. But not for these ladies. They're believing in Him. Don't be afraid. Then he gives them some instructions in verse 10. Keep reading. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. We're going to rendezvous there, as I said. Go and tell them to go there. doesn't mean they might not see him along the way, but that's where we're going to go. Give them that message. And as good as this is, we come to number four, a fourth response to the bodily resurrection, and that is deception. This is where I like to say the tenor of the soundtrack changes. This is where the upbeat moves to the morose. This is where the camera shifts to a different scene. Verse 11 says, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests, you don't know what that means, that means religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders, all that had taken place. Verse 12 says, And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, read, schemed, They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Well, I don't mean to insult your intelligence, but that's a pretty bad lie. Just in case you didn't catch that. Oh, yeah, while we were sleeping, his disciples came and stole his body away. Hmm. While we were sleeping, we saw his disciples. Anyway, okay, people will believe whatever they want to believe. Verse 14 says, If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Pretty confident. Verse 14 is a very confident assertion. Why could they be so confident? If something comes up with the governor, we'll take care of it. I would assume because of history. There's a track record. We know how to deal with the governor. We have a long history of manipulating and negotiating and compromising. It's called politics. We're going to do something for him. He does something for us. And it works back and forth. And the whole system was built on this. So we'll take care of that. Verse 15, So they took money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Well, that right there is proof that what these guys were saying before was a lie. Back in chapter 27, when Jesus was on the cross, they said, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Liars. Because Jesus has now done better than come down from the cross. He's actually died and come back to life and they're not believing, they're scheming to do anything they could possibly do, underhandedly so, to cover up the whole thing. It's the human heart, the human heart, the human heart. Now they have objective, verifiable, eyewitness testimony. 
don't believe it. You see, evidence doesn't demand a verdict to the sinful, fallen, even religious human heart because there's way too much at stake. Apart from God, see, this is a good opportunity to see the grace of God or the lack of the grace of God. Apart from God intervening and opening their eyes and and giving them a new heart spiritually, they said, just give us proof and we'll believe. And now they have better proof than they were even asking for. And they don't believe. God has to show His grace. You see, for them, there's too much at stake. It means a paycheck. It means a reputation. It means they'd have to say they were wrong. It means they'd have to shut down their quote-unquote churches, their religious establishments. This is what happened historically, but we would be very naive to think it doesn't still happen that way. You see, if these guys acknowledge that he rose from the dead, that means they're out of business. That means they have to say they're wrong. Oh, by the way, again, I'll bring up Acts 17 again. It also means, apart from repentance, there's a coming judge. Acts 17 teaches us that one of the reasons Jesus rose from the dead is to prove to everyone that through Jesus Christ, the world is going to be judged. You see, if you're not a believer, you don't want a resurrection. You, you know, you should enroll in academic study and start working on that Ph.D. dissertation now. As many reasons as you could possibly come up with that there's not a resurrection. Because if there's a resurrection, you are smoked. Unless you believe in this Christ. Read Psalm 2. The very same son. Psalm 2 is the psalm that's quoted so many times in the New Testament regarding Christ. The same son where you find refuge, forgiveness, redemption, is the same son who has a rod, a staff of iron, and he will smash and judge those who don't repent. Acts 17 is a good Easter message. He rose for our life if we believe. He rose to prove the judgment of those who don't believe. Acts 17.31. I'll read it since I keep referencing it. Because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, capital M, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. You wonder why the every single year Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine, whatever magazine or whatever religious or whatever PBS has to have another documentary on all of these reasons this didn't actually really happen. I know why those keep coming out. And they keep giving the same rehashed arguments. It's the same old, same old. They need to not have it be true. Just as we need to have it be true. And so, we see deception. Let's move on. Number five, a fifth response. We'll do this one really quickly because it's just review. Number five is more worship. More worship. Verse 16, now, or some of your translations say, but. 
And I think there's a purposeful contrast. You've got this deception, and these guys are trying to snuff out the testimony of Jesus, but you know what? It's not going to work. Contrast now or but the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. I love that narrative because it shows that while there's going to be the opposition, you cannot stop this from being successful. They're going to worship too. They worship. And so they do. And so do we. They worship for the same reasons the women worshiped. He's the justifier, sanctifier, redeemer, glorifier. Number six, sixth response to the bodily resurrection of Jesus is doubt. Verse 17 says, but some doubted. I wonder how many of you get nervous by that. Kind of makes us nervous, you know. We're here at Omaha Bible Church. We're Christians and we're here celebrating, as we always do, quite frankly, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Some doubted. And here's where you want me to say, well, actually, in the Greek, it means they didn't have the kind of confidence they would have later. Or you want me to say, well, according to uh, such and such a Ugaritic text that we uh, found in such and such an archaeological discovery, it sheds light on the linguistic facets of blah, 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 blah. In Greek, doubted here means doubted. They, they, some doubted. But I don't think you need to be nervous about it. Oh, sure, if I were writing the Bible, I wouldn't put it in there. Right? I want, I want the case to look perfect and, you know, everybody, everybody worshipped and there was not a question in anyone's mind. But see, Matthew is an historian. He's not a theologian trying to massage the historical narrative to try to make it fit the needs of the people, to try to create an argument for Christianity. He is an historian, and he's writing down what happened. And so I'm thankful for the fact that he wrote down what happened. Some doubted. And maybe I'll push it a little bit further. If you were an eyewitness to what happened at Calvary, you saw what was done to him on the way to the cross. You saw what was done to him on the cross. You saw Him with your own eyes. You heard His cry with your own ears. Maybe I'd like to push it so far as to say, if when you first saw Him raised from the dead, you didn't have some kind of questioning, some kind of doubting going on in your mind, there might be something wrong with you. Crucified? Risen from the dead? actually would say this actually gives more support to the fact that he really, truly, genuinely was crucified. That he really died. Brutally so. So some doubt it. I think that might help us to understand it a bit better. Some suggest that in the next verse it talks about how Jesus came up to them. Maybe they were doubtful before he got closer. Maybe, but I think we're trying to push it too far. Or, or maybe the 11, since they'd seen him, they, they didn't doubt, but the others outside of the 11 doubted. 
Maybe, but how about some doubt it? They're not going to doubt very much longer because they're going to, the Bible says, turn the world upside down. So their confidence level is pretty high momentarily. Well, let's move on to number seven, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together as an act of worship to this risen Christ. Number seven, a seventh response, command. Command. Let's keep it one word. Keep it simple. Seventh historic response is command. Not our command, but Jesus' command. How does Jesus respond to his own resurrection? He gives a command. Based upon his authority, based upon his successful cross work, based upon his resurrection, verse 18 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I like that. If you're a Christian, you like that. You say, he most certainly is the man. All authority in heaven and on earth, that includes everywhere, right? All authority, universal authority everywhere, every place, over everyone has been given to me. And I know we normally read this in light of the Great Commission, which we're going to read in just a second. But actually, before we do that, let's read this statement in light of the resurrection. This is a resurrection text. Because he rose again from the dead, he is the authority over everyone because no one else has had power over sin in the grave. No other religious leader has ever done such a thing. He trumps them all. He is over all of them. Universal dominion, universal authority is His. Now, if you're wondering, did He lack authority before the resurrection? The answer to that would be no. How about this for authority? He had the authority to heal, the power to heal, power to forgive sin, power to raise the dead temporarily. Obviously, it wasn't for eternal reasons or purposes or ends. Power to create out of nothing. Power over demons, power over nature, and on the list could go. But Philippians 2.6 would have us to know again and following that he humbled himself. He set aside the, the independent display of his power while he was here on earth. But all of that humility is over. Now, according to Philippians 2, he is the exalted one and his name is above every name. Proof because he rose again from the dead. And so he's in charge. He has all authority. If you had risen from the dead, you would be above all of us. Nobody's done this. Nobody can do this. He's done it. So he is in charge. He's the accomplished king. He has dominion. He's the divine Messiah of Matthew 7. And then with that in mind, universal sovereignty, universal command, universal mission comes. Look at verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We know it so well that we don't know it. Please notice the universality of it all. 
Okay, verse 18 has us to know all authority in heaven and on earth. So that is absolute universal authority. Then we come to 19. Make disciples, make followers of mine, of all nations, universal scope, because he has universal authority, baptizing them in the name of the Father and, the, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, universal command. And behold, I am with you always, universal Partnership, accountability. This is good. This is very good. He rose again from the dead, putting the Father's stamp of approval, if you will, on His work. Read Romans 1.4, read Psalm 2, I think Acts 22 off the top of my head. That the Father was satisfied. Therefore, make disciples of all nations, all ethnos, all people groups. Doesn't matter what language they speak. Doesn't matter what their current cultural religion is. It's universal because there is only one who rose again from the dead and therefore is worthy to have disciples. You see, this is, Jesus makes sense. <laughs> okay? You, you can throw rocks if you want, but you can't say it's not logical. Because He's the risen one and no other religious leader has ever risen from the dead. So it's proof that He is worthy of disciples everywhere. Every tribe, tongue, nation, people. He says to His disciples, get to work. You travel high and low speaking of my greatness and of the hope that is in me because quite frankly, there's no hope in all of the other religious leaders because all of them are rotting in their graves. Get to work. This makes so much sense. It makes sense for you and for me too why we would want to preach the gospel to people. Why it would be unethical for us not to. There's no hope in dead saviors. It would be unethical for us to proclaim some other savior. It is unethical for anyone to, to proclaim any other kind of savior, even the savior of self. And so, I hope with joy and a smile on our face, we step over every boundary that separates the all ethnos, the all nations. And we tell them about the great Christ the great one who atoned for sins having lived a perfectly righteous life and the great one who rose again from the dead. And if you believe in Him and Him alone, you too will have eternal life. This isn't limited to Jerusalem. This isn't limited to the Middle East. This isn't limited to Omaha, Nebraska. This isn't limited to the United States of America. All nations. Because there's a universal authority involved, and His name is Jesus. And that motivates us. We should find ourselves motivated like these people were motivated. They're running to go and tell other people because there is a true Savior. A Savior who makes sense. A Savior who is worthy of praise and adoration. Now I have to tell you a little secret. This isn't really an Easter sermon. 
And this is what we do every Sunday. And if it's not what we do every Sunday, then we have a serious problem. See, for Christians, because Jesus has all authority, and we've been called to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that He commanded, you feel the universality of it? You're meant to feel that. Then we start reading in the rest of the Bible, and it says things like, Christ who is our life. And in Romans 12, 1, it says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, that is all of you, all of the time, as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You see, we're, we're always about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Next week, guess what we're going to talk about? This. Last week, guess what we talked about? A month from now, catch us on an off Sunday. We're going to talk about this. In one way or another, this is what we're going to talk about because Christ is our life. This really isn't an Easter sermon. We're trying to be culturally accommodating. Okay? But come any Easter, like next Sunday or the next Sunday. And it's actually not Easter. Easter comes from Eshtar. Fertility? I don't know if it's a god or a goddess. Probably a goddess. Eshtar, thus the eggs, the rabbits, go figure. Happy Eshtar, happy fertility day. Lord knows we don't need that here. (laughs) It's about resurrection, okay? And this literally is what we talk about all the time because... There is no such thing in the Bible as a church calendar. Literally, we're being culturally accommodating. The only thing we see like a church calendar is believers gathering week in and week out, like in the book of Acts. And what are they giving attention to? They're giving attention ultimately, first and foremost, to the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus because it's a first importance, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 says. And so this is great. But it's going to be great next week, too. And it's going to be great the next week, too. And quite frankly, it's going to be great in my heart and in my life. And it's going to make my heart beat tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day because Christ is our life. And He is the resurrection. So pray with me and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for these great, great days to live in this world. Oh yes, we see so many messed up things around us and things that cause us great grief and no no doubt are not honoring to you. But they are great days because we have a great risen Savior who is Christ Jesus the Lord who rose for our justification as Romans says. Give us a passion to love Him and to serve Him every day and every week. And Lord, give us a love and a passion for His people that we might live lives of worship for Christ the risen King. And now as we would want to honor You by obeying You out of appreciation for what You've done for us, Lord, as we eat and as we drink, may we meditate upon the perfect work of Christ Jesus the purpose, the purple, the
perfect Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.